welcome to a very special episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook, and we are celebrating our 100th episode. Over the last eight years or so, I've had the pleasure of talking to many authors, librarians, archivists, and professional genealogists. And in today's episode, you're going to hear from five of our favorite interviews from the past 100 episodes. It was a tough choice, but I know that you're going to enjoy hearing from Kurt Witcher from the Allen County Public Library, all about special censuses. That was an interview that we recorded back in 2009. And then we'll revisit a 2013 conversation with contributing editor Sonny Morton about how to add some local flavor to your family history. Then it's off to 2014 and James Sweeney of the Library of Congress and later that year, Cece Moore, who discussed her work on the Finding Your Roots TV series. And we will wrap up this 100th episode with Dave Frixell from earlier this year when he gave us strategies for dealing with unusual surnames. This 100th episode is a full hour, so let's get started. In keeping with our topic of census records, I thought I would share with you a conversation that I had last fall at the FGS conference in Philadelphia with Kurt Witcher of the Allen County Library. He's going to tell us all about the special non-population census records. Well, I am sitting here on a wood block of some type here in the FGS Conference Hall here in Philadelphia with Kurt Witcher, not a bad companion to hang out with for a few minutes and watch the folks scurrying and trying to decide where they're going to go in the next class. Kurt, I just sat in on your terrific presentation. I had a full audience. They were jazzed about it. And it was all about stuff, <laughs> all the good stuff, maybe some right. stuff we've missed. And um, tell us specifically what kind of stuff you were focusing on. Well, we were focusing on all of the stuff, <laughs> to use, use that term, that was created historically around the federal population schedules. When people hear census, they automatically think of population schedules. But as, as we discussed last hour, that there's more, way more than just federal population schedules. There's agricultural, manufacturing, and mortality, and veterans. And, and then we kind of ended the hour just kind of showing people how many other types of enumerations there are, sort of under that banner of all that other stuff. Because if you just think of federal population schedules as your only census record, you're missing so many possible records from all of the non-population schedules that were taken in conjunction with the census records, with the population schedules, but all those other enumerations. And when people think census, I would like them to think, you know, enumeration of all kinds, local, state, federal. And you can find some amazing information, as we saw during the presentation. And you know, as you were talking about that, and, and you know, most of us have run across an agricultural right. enumeration, and um, sometimes the business ones. And I guess it's because they're tacked on to the end of a population schedule. And I started thinking, now, why is it I've missed some of these? And I'm guessing it's because they're not easily accessed through Ancestry or Heritage Quest. Am I, am I correct on that? You are. Um, and, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, uh, the exciting thing about the, the 21st century is that so many 
people have come to genealogy over the web. Um, yes. we, we jokingly call them, you know, the born digital genealogists. I mean, <laughs> they haven't come to seminars or, or workshops. They've come to genealogy uh, through things like podcasts and blogs and and, and really large sites like Ancestry. Um, The sort of, you know, maybe small downside to that is if information aggregators like Ancestry don't put them out there on their websites, then people don't know about them. And you don't they, and know what you exist. don't know. Exactly. 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 That, that's and and the world of, of resources looks a bit narrower. And boy, did you just kind of blow the ceiling off of that for everybody. I could see the eyes opening and saying, whoa, I thought I understood what was out there, and I think I've missed a few things. Right. And um, I think you mentioned about seven different ones. Um, and not every one of them has a name, but there was quite a variety of information. Uh, one of them even had signatures, which yes. I love. You know, you were, you were saying, made a comment about, oh, there's some folks who love to collect, you know, the signatures. I'm one of them. I think that, I think that's fun. It's just a lot of fun on top of it. Yeah. So um, maybe you could just touch on some of those differences and the fact that not each, you know, every enumeration is different, isn't it? It, it really is. And um, what we joked about during the session, you know, uh, we all... Most of us like CSI. You know, we yeah. we like to show the crime <laughs> scene investigators. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, in many ways, those same forensic, evaluative, evidence gathering skills are what we do as as family exactly. historians. And if we can think about population schedules and census records as enumerations and kind of put on our CSI mindset, well, we're really trying to find not just one, but as many enumerations as we can. Then we get more leads. We can find mm-hmm. more records. Um, a couple of the ones that we looked at, the social schedules, for example, they, they don't list a single name on the social schedules, mm-hmm. but you know all the taxes that are collected. So now you know, okay, if I go to the courthouse and I'm looking for tax records, I know for this county I should find you know these three or four types of tax records. If we're doing research in a county, the social schedules tell us what newspapers were published, whether they that were weekly or monthly. Yes. They tell us all the denominations that are represented in that county and how many churches there were. So if we're pretty certain our ancestors were Lutheran or Baptist, well, we know that there's a finite number. There's two Baptist churches in, in this, and then we can set out finding, okay, which ones were they? Uh, where were they? Uh, are there any records? Uh, and that's that funny. It made me think of brick walls. We think we have brick walls, and I tend to think maybe they're a little more artificial than we thought because we we found the records that had the names and the dates and the places, but we skimmed over the records that just had tick marks or, you know, newspaper exactly or whatever. Right. And exactly. those were chocked full, the way you showed them to us, of clues to help us break the brick wall because they're going to send us different directions than we would have known to look. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned brick walls. I don't know how, how everyone else uh, you know, deals with or feels about their research, but to me, the thing that scares me or frightens me the most is running into a brick wall or coming to a dead end and really having no real clues about where to go. So I like the methodological, sort of the old stubborn German approach of just, you know, <laughs> slow but steady. You know, just try to mine every document for as many clues and pieces of evidence that you possibly can. And, and these non-population enumerations are golden for doing that, particularly if you try to find all of them that exist. I'm guessing with your mindset, you don't have as many brick walls as the rest of us do, because there's you're never really quite to the end of the right. corridor. Right. <laughs> exactly. You have too many different uh, hallways you're looking right. down. Right. Um, so maybe you can, uh, hopefully we've excited people to understand that there are a variety. I'll have um, the major headings on the show notes for this podcast so that people will know what you refer to besides just population. 
where would they go to look to find these records? Well, the, 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 the first best place to get just a general flavor for their time period, their state and their county, uh, three great places. One is to go to the National Archives website, and they can just plug into any browser, archives, plural, archives.gov, and oh, boom, they'll okay. take them right to the National Archives website and look for census headings on their website. They give great downloadable explanations about not just the population schedule, okay. but all of the non-population schedules. And the, they give some treatment in some instances to state census records. Okay. Uh, but generally, it's just the federal records. Second great place to look are the holdings, and, and, and all of them are online. State Library, State Archives, State Historical Society. Those right. three are, are your second tier. Um, state Archives and State Libraries oftentimes have copies of the state census schedules as well as the federal ones, but th- those special state enumerations. Those state ones that happened, that fell between the decades, exactly. I love that. Exactly. Particularly, you showed an, an example of 1895. Oh, it makes you realize, that's right, that's right, we're not right. out of luck because 1890 burned. Exactly. So, okay. So, state archives. And, and state libraries will oftentimes have you know, references to an actual list of those, what I call the really special enumerations, um, as well as state archives. They'll have microfilm of the uh, dog licenses. Um, depending upon what state codes were in particular areas and time periods, you know, you, you'll have an enumeration of physicians. You'll have an enumeration of taverns keepers. You'll have mm-hmm. an enumeration of individuals who receive bounty for wolf pelts. I mean, <laughs> amazing. Wow. What a variety. Well, this has just been a a ton of fun. I'm so glad I I snuck into your class and got myself a seat. It was a full house. Um, But, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And um, maybe last thing, did you have any suggestions on articles or books or things to point listeners to to learn more about these unique and very special uh, enumerations? Ancestry's The Source has a great chapter on census records that really covers the waterfront on all these different types of enumerations. We've been trying to coax them to make that electronic. Oh, yeah. So on their website, we could find that much more easily. Also, if you go to the National Genealogical Society has published a number of records, and the National Genealogical Society quarterly has been, you know, the... the profession standard for a long time on these methodology articles and a number of census articles over the years have been published in that quarterly as well as case studies on how people have used these special enumerations too. So if you you look at them and you go, "Uh uh-oh, they still look like tick marks to me, you could go and read a case study and maybe then see how somebody turned that into something viable. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. One of the best ways to spice up your family history is by adding a dash of local flavor. Background details of your ancestors' everyday lives, like the fashion of the day, uh, the foods they ate, local scandals rocking their neighborhood, that, all of that's going to help you understand where they were coming from, and it would certainly sweeten up your storytelling. In this top tip segment, Sunny Jane Morton, who is the author of the article Local Flavor from the September 2013 issue of the magazine, she's here to share some of those homegrown ingredients that are really going to help you cook up fresh genealogical discoveries. Welcome back to the show, Sunny. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. I just love digging up the backstories of my ancestors' lives. And in this article, you've got six areas that you've identified uh, that we can really explore. Now, 
the first one that you mentioned here is local histories. And we all hear that term, but where exactly are we tracking these down? You know, that's a good question. And I'm finding more and more that that's the first answer uh, to any question I have of where can I learn this about my ancestor's life? Oh, go to the local history books. Well, where do we find local histories? If you are local to the area that you're uh, researching, then my answer would be really go to the local library, go to your local historical society and your local genealogical society and see what titles are sitting on their shelves. Ask the experts there what books have been published on history in their area. But if you're not local, and most of us are, I would say, not local <laughs> to the areas we're researching, then we have to get a little more creative in our search strategies. In this article, I've mentioned four different strategies. So the Library of Congress is a fantastic place to start. Their website has great tips for locating any local histories and genealogies. Uh, that have been published in the United States and even around the world. They have more than 100,000 of these local histories and uh, genealogy titles. So this is, is a fantastic place to start. Um, another catalog that I mention here is FamilySearch catalog. And the nice thing about FamilySearch is that its catalog is already organized by location for you. Mm -hmm. So you can just go and browse by location and get down to the town or county you're looking for. So if I'm really trying to search out one particular area, that's a, a place that I go to. It's not as comprehensive as the Library of Congress, but it's easier to get right to the geographical location. Good point. And, you know, you mentioned about going to the, the local areas, if you happen to be in that local area, because there you're not only getting the books, but you're getting the brains of the people. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's funny. Sometimes it'll just be somebody who's sitting next to you hearing you ask the question. They're like, oh been here forever. I know about that. So that's a wonderful piece of advice. And the Library of Congress, I, I agree too, because not only those local histories, but then there's this whole wealth of area in terms of uh, digitized ephemera, you know, the, the old documents and, and sheet music and menus from the ships that they sailed. I mean, so many different kinds of things, all part of the American Memory Project over there. And I see that you're also mentioning WorldCat. And of course, WorldCat and FamilySearch are kind of partnering up these days, right? They are. That's really exciting to me. <laughs> I have to say, that's a very exciting partnership for me to watch unfold. But WorldCat certainly is a place to go to find some of these titles that you might see in the Library of Congress catalog, but maybe you don't live next door to the Library of Congress. Most of us don't. So WorldCat is a great place to go to um, both find titles and to access the ones that could be sent to you from a mother library. Right. And of course, and then you've mentioned under digitized county histories, Google Books, which you get that added benefit of uh, being able to perhaps download them, certainly be able to search within hundreds and hundreds of pages of an old local history. And that's all right from your home computer. It really is. And most of the titles that I've listed there, Family Search, Google Books, Internet Archive, um, they're free and they yeah. don't take very long to search just to search for the title. So it's, it doesn't take too long at all to search for local histories, and you can really uncover, you can answer a lot of important questions about your ancestors' lives, like what took a whole 
generation of Polish immigrants to Pittsburgh in the early 1900s? How come they were all there? Or, you know, there's so many different questions that you have about, well, how come this particular neighborhood settled on this side of the river? Why did they choose there? Or, you know, who who attended this uh, the, the local high school and who was excluded and things like that. So the local histories really do give you insight like nobody's business into yeah. what was going on. Absolutely. And and your second item of the six in this article, of course, is old newspapers. You gotta love the newspapers. I know in uh, researching my great grandfather, I was amazed how many cable car accidents there were in San Francisco at the turn of the century. And it's kind of no surprise that after just a few years of working on a cable car, he became an insurance salesman. So, <laughs> you know, that and the, and the great earthquake, I mean, I think he saw a great opportunity there, but it's sometimes it's just that accumulation of articles that kind of help you see a trend in something that very likely could have affected their lives, right? Absolutely. And neighbors, the neighborhood newspapers are going to have, you know, often the same types of content as your histories, but they're going to have it on a, a total, totally microscopic level on a day-by-day scale. Uh-huh. So you can really get, it's almost like, looking at like the the local histories are um looking at the history and the neighborhood newspapers are like looking at history through a microscope. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is probably one of those areas of records where it's still a fairly small percentage that are digitized and yet if you look at the total number of pages available, it's mammoth, but that's just because newspapers are such a large, large record group. And I think we're seeing more and more of those uh, coming online as well. Of course, you mentioned in the article, newspapers.com. That's a new offering that's out there. And there's several others. And then number three was historical maps. Now, how are historical maps giving us that that local background? You know, I got my first look at historical maps when um, I had just graduated from high school. And I got a job during the summers uh, working for the county Map department, and it was really a fantastic How job for fun. a budding genealogist. <laughs> so, because I I spent my time helping people find plat maps and historical maps and topographical maps and all the kinds of images that give us a bird's eye view of what our ancestors' property lines and neighborhoods looked like. And there's all kinds depending on the type of map. And I've mentioned several different types here. You might see where the house was sited on a particular property, what kinds of outbuildings they had from an outhouse to a shed or a carriage house. You might see what a building was built out of. Some of these Sanborn insurance maps are just amazing. You'll you'll know Uh that the apartment building was 10 stories high. It had leaded glass windows and had asbestos in it. Wow. (laughs) The kind of details that you can learn from some of these maps And I think some of the most striking ones are when we are looking at terrain, especially rural terrain, that we don't know ourselves. When I first started researching family in West Virginia, I really understood the the geography differently once I looked at a topographic map and realized that that these families lived in these little hollers. Yeah. And that it wasn't a short drive from one point to the next. <laughs> it was a real haul to go through these little tiny, these little valleys and or climb up over these big hills. It made a lot more sense to me why the roads and railroads looked the way they did and how isolated people were. 
Yeah, really. That, and that's what gives you that sense of what was daily life like when uh, they didn't have time to sit down and stop and, and jot it all down for us. And, you know, any of you out there listening who have never worked yet with a plat map, got to check this out. Because I know in my case, I found a couple where, gosh, your ancestor's name could literally be written right there on their property. There are little 80 acres on the plat map. Uh, and Sunny spells all this out for us. Gosh, our interview time has gone by so fast, and yet I know there. I'm just going to have to tempt everybody. There's um, three more items here, and they are chock full of great ways to get that local flavor on your family history. And Sunny, I always love your articles because you just have so many URL addresses and specific how-tos that we can just jump into right away. Well, I hope you do. It was a fun uh, metaphor to use using these local sources as uh, to give your research local flavor because I love food as much as I love it. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Oh, Sunny, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the podcast. Absolutely. of the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Family History, we'll be taking a look at the Library of Congress website, which offers a wealth of resources for helping family historians tell their family stories. And here to give us the tour is James Sweeney. He's the Head Local History and Genealogy Reference Services. Hi, Jay. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you again. You know, in this episode, we're kind of talking about sharing and saving our family stories. And when family historians pull together, you know, the births and the marriages and the deaths, they they start yearning to kind of put some meat on those bones, you know, and add some context to the story. So what would you suggest our first stop would be when we visit the Library of Congress's website? Well, Lisa, the Library of Congress is a great place to place your families in historical context. And the best place to begin searching is through the Library of Congress's homepage at www.loc.gov. And right in the middle of the webpage are our collection highlights. And you'll find American memory, prints and photographs. What you'll find primarily on this website are our online offerings. And I'm looking at them here. It's, it's, um, really easy to navigate because there's all these great little visuals letting us know the types of of content. So I see here what maps and veteran history and prints and photography. There's a, a huge range here, isn't there? Exactly. It's a huge digital library. And as you state, it contains historical maps, photos, documents, audio, video. One is able to browse by topic or by keyword. Perhaps in our conversation, we can mention a few uh, of these uh, collections to highlight that would be particularly important for family historians. Absolutely. For example, in American memory, and again, we might not find our ancestor listed specifically, but we might find the circumstances which others uh, found themselves, or for example, in regimental units or in personal narratives and diaries that may not mention our ancestor, but we might get a feel of how life was during that period in that location. And that's the value of, of, of these resources. Our ancestor wouldn't have had to write a, a diary in order for us to benefit from the diaries of others who perhaps worked along or served 
with our ancestors. For example, in American memory, just to highlight some examples, one is California as I saw it. And this is a, a collection of first-person narratives of California's early years, 1849 to 1900. And why would this be helpful? Well, because it consists of full text and illustrations of 190 works that documents California's early years, but through eyewitness accounts. And so you'll find diaries, encounters. So it's interesting to browse to find, for example, if your ancestors were involved in, in migrating for the California Gold Rush. Many of these folks kept diaries uh, to get a greater sense of how life was like uh, on that frontier. That's a great point, because like you say, it, it may not be that we're looking for our, our surname necessarily in on this website, but we're, we're getting the context, aren't we? You're, you're talking about people who were there who can describe the area. So it doesn't have to be our ancestor describing a situation or a location to be able to really flesh out that story. And in many of these diaries, especially, other names are mentioned that pinpoint ah. dates, places, events. Uh, it might record marriages, uh, who the justice was. And so we might be able to find corollary links through these diaries. Another, for example, uh, for the East Coast would be the Capitol and the Bay, narratives of Washington and the Chesapeake Bay region, roughly 1600 to 1925. And the value of these collections is it pulls together full text publications from the Library of Congress. So you're able to search full text through these books, narratives, diaries, in, in pulling out information about uh, life in, in that particular location, uh, those events. Those are narratives, but there are, other there are other collections that might be helpful. Early Virginia Religious Petitions is a very interesting collection, and the value of some of these library online offerings is it pulls together uh, resources in multi-formats. I like the Early Virginia Religious Petitions, uh, not only because it presents images of about 423 petitions submitted to the Virginia legislature between 1774 and 1802, but also with each of these petitions, their names listed, that you're able to pinpoint a name at a date at a specific location that you may not find in other places. Also to help, there are links to early Virginia maps that pulls offerings from our, from our geography and map collection. So on one website, you're able to with a matter of clicks, jump from these petitions to the counties at that time and how they were organized, their jurisdictions, in order to, to trace your family history. Wow, what a great resource. If, if we're here at the LOC website and we click through to American Memory, what would you recommend? Should we go directly to one of these particular collections or do we start with the search box? How would you recommend somebody get started with that? Well, obviously, it's much more specific if you go right to that collection. You can browse by topic to get an idea. That would be my first suggestion. You can always type in keywords, although that is not the most effective way. However, if you've run out of clues, that might give you some. And so that would be the second approach. Just type in some keywords and see what comes up. Unfortunately, and remember, you're, you're searching the Library of Congress. So you right. might find many more hits 
than you have time to look for. So what would be most specific would be trying to identify a collection and then searching within that collection. Now, I'll say this again at the end, but also throughout, that whenever you have questions about searching our library's webpage and these various online digital collections, please note that at the top of the page and at each of the, the web pages of the library, there's an Ask a Librarian link that if you click on, your question will come to a librarian. And if you're not finding something that you hope to see, or you need guidance in being able to formulate a search, we encourage you to ask a librarian. Use that online link that you can formulate a question to us so we can get back with, so we can guide you through using our website if you have a challenge with that. Boy, that's wonderful. What a wonderful resource. Now, we just have a few minutes left. I'm curious about newspapers. I know you have the Chronicling America um, collection there on the um, website, and certainly newspapers is a wonderful way to, to add stories to stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Chronicling America is a wonderful project that, that's coordinated here at the Library of Congress. As you think as you search Chronic America, Chronicling America, think in terms of small town, county papers. Now, not all the states are represented, but many are. Uh, the papers are chosen at the state level, and then these files are, are sent to the library to, to coordinate on this website. But think small town, county papers. There are other uh, databases that serve the large metropolitan areas. But Chronic America is unique because these are the small towns uh, that are represented. These are the county papers. So you'll find obituaries. You'll find the personals. And the personals uh, during this time period, essentially we're talking about 1836 to 1922, the personals are the coming and going of folks. Uh, who's visiting? Who's home from college? Uh, who's away for the season? And so you might not find references to ancestors in the other place, perhaps, but the newspaper listed in a, in, in a, from a small town. Uh, Chronically America is, is easy to search. You can identify, limit by state, by time period, and then type in keywords. And those words will be highlighted on the images in Chronic America. In addition, now not all, of course, all these as I said, not all these newspapers have been digitized. There, there have been selections. However, uh -huh. if you find part of also Chronicling America is that there's a directory, the U.S. newspaper directory. So if you find that you have ancestors from a, a certain county that hasn't been digitized, you can go into the U.S. newspaper directory portion of Chronicling America to determine what library might have that paper, uh, perhaps most likely on microfilm, to be able to contact that library or to be able to continue your research. And so it, it's a dual-purpose database. One is to provide full-text newspapers for these small town and counties, but also as a directory to find other newspapers that may not be listed in the database. But as we know in, in family history research, newspapers are a goldmine as far as finding clues uh, to our ancestors, dates, places, in obituary, we might find military uh, information, what regiments a particular ancestor served in, like in clues in a, an obituary that might lead us then to records. You know, you've made a really good point. I want to emphasize it to those listening that 
the newspapers are sorted in these two different ways. When you're at the Chronicling America website, as, as Jay mentioned, you can see the tab that says all digitized newspapers. So if you want to start there and look at the ones that are digitized, you know, that's a great place to start. But then I see this, it looks like a purple button up here in the upper right hand corner, the US newspaper directory. And Jay, it looks like that's a wider time span. It says 1690 to present. So that directory is far more reaching than the digitized collection, which is emphasizing 1836 to 1922. Is that right? That is correct. And of course, the 1690, you're thinking of the uh, newspapers from New England uh, during Uh that period. Not all newspapers, of course, existed in that range, but at least that's the scope of, of some of the newspapers in that database. Yes. Wow. Well, you know, the Library of Congress is such a a wonderful resource. I know we've just scratched the surface, but I think that you've got us all interested to kind of go back and be thinking about how we can add to those stories of our families through not only looking for them as individuals, but also looking for their, their world, if you will, the context of their lives. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Jay, for taking a few minutes out to, to take us on our personal tour of the Library of Congress. Thank you. And again, as you have questions, please ask a librarian. Absolutely. That's And tell us again the uh, website so we can find it. If you simply go to the library's website, www.loc.gov, you will see Ask a Librarian, the link in the upper right-hand corner. Perfect. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Jay. You're welcome. PBS television show Finding Your Roots features the use of DNA analysis prominently, and that's gone a long way in helping bring DNA into the consciousness of family historians across the country. And even though it can look a little bit quick and simple on TV, of course, a lot goes on behind the scenes to make it all happen. And in this top tips segment, the series genetic genealogy consultant CC Moore is joining me to talk about the DNA work on the show and to share some insights that might just help you in your genealogy research. Cece is the co-founder of the Institute for Genetic Genealogy, an instructor for a number of courses and conferences around the U.S., and the author of the blog, Your Genetic Genealogist, and also Adoption and DNA. Welcome to the show, Cece. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You know, um, genealogy television programming has become quite popular with several of the shows that are on the air now. But really, I think Finding Your Roots was not only one of the earliest entries, but also it really pioneered the use of DNA in the search. How did you become involved in the show? I invited uh, Dr. Gates to speak at the DNA Day the first DNA day at Jamboree, Southern California Genealogical Society's Jamboree. And he agreed, kindly agreed, and he was our luncheon speaker. And afterwards, uh, Dr. Joanna Mountain from 23andMe told him he should stay and watch one of my speeches. And he did. It was sort of nerve-wracking up there giving it (laughs) and sitting in the back. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as I was done, somebody grabbed me and said he wanted to speak to me. And he offered me the job on the spot. He said that he had been looking for somebody to do specific genetic genealogy work on the show. And he thought that I would be perfect for that. And as it's turned out, it's it's been actually uh, perfect for me. It fit a lot of my different experiences in the past, not just with genealogy, but script writing and things like that. 
So it was a big surprise, uh, not something I ever thought I would end up doing. In fact, season one, I had reviewed the DNA used in each of the episodes of Finding Your Roots. And when I was writing that, I never thought that I would actually be the one doing the work later. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that amazing? How fun. Now, obviously, there's a lot of different cases that you're working on. And I'm curious, do you rely heavily on one particular test when you work with the show? Or are you really tailoring the testing to specific genealogical questions? You know, it really depends. We make sure that we test all the guests at all three of the companies offering DNA testing to genealogy. We want to use every single resource and tool that we have at our disposal. And so we want to try fishing in all three of the ponds, uh, as we say, to try to find something interesting. And that also means looking at all three types of DNA. So oftentimes, I'm just trying to find anything of interest that we can use in the show. So I look at autosomal DNA, I look at Y-DNA, I look at MT-DNA, and I look at all three of the companies. Now, other times, we'll have a specific research question that comes up when the genealogy research team is looking at it. And they'll contact me. For instance, a typical one would be for an African-American guest. They'll identify a slave owner of one of uh, the guest's ancestors. And right away, we want to see if there could be a genetic relationship. So when we do that, uh, we'll often look at Y-DNA and autosomal DNA, depending on uh, who we have available to test. That's that's great. And it's it's helpful because I think um, many people think of DNA testing as kind of one test, and it's really not. And it's really married together with the question at hand. Now, before we dig a little more into that, I know you've got some great tips for our listeners. Um, give us a rundown. Who are these three testing companies, the main ones that you're working with? We work with Family Tree DNA, Ancestry DNA, and 23andMe. And we use the autosomal DNA testing for all three of those companies. And then on a case-by-case basis, I will add Y-DNA or a full mitochondrial DNA sequence from Family Tree DNA. Okay, great. Now, um, we know Y-DNA is the male line. Mitochondrial is the female line. Um, Autosomal is getting more on people's radar. Can you give us the, the elevator speech on what exactly does autosomal do? Sure. Autosomal DNA is inherited from all of our ancestral lines. So you carry little pieces or big pieces of DNA from all of your great-grandparents. And your great-grandparents inherited theirs from their great-grandparents. So we're made up of our ancestors going back in time. Now, as Bonnie Bettinger has written on his blog, The Genetic Genealogist, uh, we have a genealogical family tree and a genetic family tree. Our genealogical family tree includes all of our ancestors going back in time. But our genetic family tree is only a subset of those ancestors. So we have all of... Uh, our second great-grandparent autosomal DNA, and probably all of our third. But when you start getting further back, some of those ancestors fall off your genetic family tree. So autosomal DNA is very, very good going back about six generations. But the one big misconception is that it can't work going further back than that. And I use it all the time for much more distant ancestor research. It's just that you can't disprove a theory if you're looking past second cousins, but you can uh, help support a theory using data from autosomal DNA further back. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, that that really helps define it better. Uh, Now, you obviously have seen a lot of different cases and scenarios. And I'd love to have you share some of the tips, things that you've picked up along the way and things that you think that people particularly new to DNA uh, need to keep in mind. Okay, well, one thing in particular is that autosomal DNA has really increased in popularity, and it's certainly my favorite type of DNA to use. But I don't want people to forget about Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA because it still comes in very useful. For me, very often I'll use it, and I'm not just looking at the direct lines of the person in question, meaning I'm not just looking at the guest father's, 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 father's line on the Y-DNA. Uh, For example, if there's a slave owner that we would like to see if they're actually a genetic ancestor of the guest, what I'll do is I'll try to find a son of that slave owner and then his son, his son, his son coming forward in time, so doing reverse genealogy or descendancy research to see if I can get a Y DNA test on that person. And then I'll try to trace the enslaved ancestor, if it's a male, of course, uh, of the guest, and then trace his line forward in time along his direct paternal line to his son, 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 and then compare that Y chromosome and see if it's matching. And I think a lot of people forget that they can still use Y DNA or mtDNA in the inner branches of their tree. They just can't use themselves as the tester. But if they use reverse genealogy, and they're able to identify descendants on those lines, they can compare those. And it's a much more specific answer that you'll get. You may get an autosomal DNA match too, which is fantastic, and it helps to support the theory. But uh, you don't know for sure it's coming from that line. But with a Y-DNA test, you're looking at a very specific line. So as much as I love autosomal DNA, I don't want your listeners to forget that we still have these other types of tests that can be very valuable. And in many of my cases, I'm using more than one type of DNA. So I'm looking at autosomal DNA in conjunction with Y-DNA or mitochondrial DNA. And I use the X chromosome all the time in the cases as well. So I think people um, sometimes think of these tests in independently of each other rather than that you can use them in conjunction with each other. That is so well said. And it's such an important concept, I think, for the listeners, anybody interested in using DNA for genealogy. And you've actually packed a couple of really important ideas in there, not only the fact that we can use them in conjunction, but to not forget that the genealogy research goes hand in hand with the DNA. I think oftentimes people will run the test and they think that the results stand alone and tell them something. And you've really described a whole process of you are working in particularly reverse genealogy right alongside, you know, bringing in the results and having it all kind of come together in one big picture. Well, uh, thank you so much for giving us what we wanted to hear, which is just some of that great background and some of the really usable ideas and tips that you've incorporated yourself that we can start to look to in our own genealogy research. Cece Moore, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And good luck to everybody.
An unusual surname can be an asset when you're researching your family history. And David Frixell is here to share six strategies for using those oddball names to your advantage. These come from his article. It's called The Unusual Suspects, and it appears in the January-February 2016 issue of the magazine. Welcome back, David. Thank you for having me. I have to say this is, for obvious reasons, this is one of my favorite all-time articles I've done for Family Tree, because with a last name like Frixell, the idea of uh, unusual surnames is kind of near and dear to my heart. I was figuring this was right up your alley. <laughs> of course, now, I don't have a terribly unusual name with the E on the end, but it's amazing how much time you spend spelling your last name, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, I know you've got some pretty cool strategies um, in this article for kind of making the most of this. So I just thought we'd do a quick rundown. What's number one? Well, sure. Well, first of all, you know, I tried to look on the bright side of having an unusual last name. And for genealogists, it's that if you find somebody with that last name, it's likely that they're either, you know, you're, in my case, it's either my Frickcell family or there's one other Frickcell family. And that's pretty much it. Um, so if in that case, um, you can, if you have a, an unusual surname in your family, even if it's not your main surname, you know, if, if you have somebody who married in the family or, a, you know, one way or another, you've got an, an unusual surname, it's much easier to trace that surname. You know, we always talk about cluster genealogy. Um, mm -hmm. So that the idea that you, your family's moved in clusters, sometimes with their neighbors even. Um, well, if you've got an unusual name in that cluster, you can try and find them instead of the, you know, Smiths and Joneses. Exactly. If they're kind of teamed up with other families with really common names, it's the uncommon one, even if it's not your target person, right? Right. That's the one you target to try to find these groups of people. It, I, I love that. They may travel along or, you know, be in the, be live next door or marry into the family or something. So, you know, if you've, if you've got, uh, you know, a Frickcell in the, in the line, you know, look for the Frickcells instead of the Smiths. You're, you're exactly. a lot better off. Now, number two you have on here is go for the given names. Yeah. How do those help well, us out? Often, um, and I noticed this in, in my mother's family, um, those unusual surnames um, pop up as uh, given names. So, for example, I've got a uh, ancestor named Thomas Oglesby Rosser and another one named Oglesby Ashley Lowe. <laughs> So the, the, you know, little red flags go up and like, well, where's that Oglesby name? That's, right. It's not bizarre, but it's fairly unusual. And suddenly it shows up in the you know, first or middle names of a couple of ancestors. Well, in fact, there is an Oglesby family um, a couple generations back in the family tree. So the, you know, the trick is that that family, uh, you know, that unusual surname um, may pop up in later years elsewhere you know, in the name. I've got one uh, in the same family, actually. I've got a uh, Nisba Uptegrove Stowe. Nisba's a wonderful first name. Um, but Uptegrove there, turns out, her paternal grandmother was Amy Uptegrove. So if you've got an unusual uh, name anywhere in the, in the family tree, you know, take a look. It might be that missing maiden name, for example, that you just can't figure out. Um, it's worth checking out. Oh, yeah, perfect. Now, Number three, you're talking about uh, consider geography. So I'm uh, thinking we're we're looking at how these names connect with geographical locations. Yeah, sometimes uh, you'll find that there are particular names that might stand out because they're unusual. In that, for example, there are um, a small group of 
German names who that pop up in Ireland of all places. There's a similar thing, uh, a migration of French Huguenots. So suddenly, if you if you're researching your Irish ancestors and you come across, you know, Deverill or Blanc as a last name, uh, that's unusual in a different way. That, that it's unusual for that area, and that can give you the clue to the fact that there, you may need to look beyond Ireland in that case um, to uh, try and figure out where they actually came from. Oh, good point. Because you know, a lot of times, uh, a, a surname that is uncommon here in the U.S. might be really common in Germany or somewhere else, and that could happen anywhere. Exactly. And there are even examples of uh, names which come from very small, you know, areas that, that in this particular part of, you know, Switzerland, um, there are a lot of people with this oddball last name, but almost nowhere else. Uh, right. So sometimes, even if you're not sure they're your relatives, you find these People with that oddball last name, yeah, you know, it's worth that's it's a clue. That's a clue worth following up on. Now, strategy number four is cast a spell. Oh, you got a little magic for us. Well, I, the magic is is uh, that sometimes it can the downside of uh, unusual surnames is that they get misspelled so many different ways. I mean, we've even had Fritzell, we've had Frynell, Frytel, even Purcell. Um, so one way around that for a number of genealogy websites is to use wildcard characters. And you need to use them strategically um, so you don't get too many you know, choices. But uh, at Ancestry.com, for example, a question mark represents a single wildcard character, whereas an asterisk stands for any number of unknown letters or none. So if you just put it at the end of a, of a the first part of an unusual name, uh, you might get a, a whole bunch of you know, options. But sometimes that's the only way to find your missing, uh, you know, terribly, awfully misspelled uh, surname uh, in these online databases to turn to those wildcard characters. Yeah, there, and there's usually one or two letters in every name that tends to be the one that gets kind of messed up. And, and I love using that question mark, uh, as you said, to run it through Ancestry and see what the variations are. Now, of course, there are variations in names, and names change. Number five is find the game changer. Yes. You know, I, I was researching my uh, uh, father's mother's family, who's uh, known as Lundine, and I was just running into just no end of – I just couldn't get anywhere. And then finally, I thought to ask my aunt, and uh, she said, you know, sort of blithely, like, Oh, well, didn't you know they used to be all Ingelsons back in the old country? I'm like, well, shoot. You know, so once I knew that, that they had changed <laughs> their name. Now, it's not true um, that, you know, you often hear the myth about names being changed at Ellis Island by some, you know, clerk or something like that. Right. And, and that's really mostly a myth. But it is true that people did tend to change their name. They were a lot more casual about their last names. Um, and, uh, and so your unusual last name um, may have changed. So, you know, if, if you had a, you know, Polish Zabatosny family, um, they might have just be Zep in the United States. You know, the, mm-hmm. the Barankowitzes might be just Brown. So be prepared that you're, you may have an unusual surname in the family and not even know it. So it may have gotten very old to them as well, to having to continually spell it and deal with exactly. all the language yeah. barriers. I mean, ugh. you know, some of those, these last names, particularly like from Eastern European countries, make Frixell look like a walk in the park. 
And right. so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's B-A-R-A, you know, <laughs> C-W, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, let's put down brown, you know. Yeah, and the yeah. story with my family is, in fact, that um, one brother was Frixell, which was a Swedish army name that they assigned to help because their, their last names tend to be also similar. And then my great-grandfather was Magnuson, and that supposedly when they came to America, they were told it's, uh, it's funny to have two brothers with different last names. And for some reason, they picked Frixell instead of the much easier to spell Magnuson. So. Mm. Oh, interesting. Well, and number six, research extinct surnames. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, MyHeritage.com actually has a fun list of endangered last names with fewer than 20 uh, people on them. And uh, so, of course, if you have uh, this last name in your family, um, it, it may be that there are plenty of people with that last name in the past, but in present day, not so much. And some of them are kind of fun, like uh, last name Miracle or um, Relish or Bird Whistle. You know, if you have a, if you have a, uh, you know, Joseph Bird Whistle in the family, you know, that <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely jump on that one. Um, and then there are other ones that have simply gone extinct, like um, Spinster and uh, By the Sea, or uh, the alternative By the Seashore. Um, it's cute names, but they just are not many people, um, you know, name that anymore. But obviously, if you have those uh, last names, uh, you know, and you can trace them back to before they became extinct, the odds that those people are indeed your family um, go up a great deal. Exactly. Well, hey, there are six great strategies for really capitalizing on uh, this very oddball, unique, difficult to spell surnames that we all have in our family tree. Uh, they're in there and they actually can help really differentiate um, families and locations and help us really zero in on the people that we're looking for. You can read all about it, get all the details and, and more suggested tools that David provides in the article. It's called The Unusual Suspects and it's in the January-February 2016 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Dave, always great talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. enjoyed this special hour-long 100th episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast and our trip down memory lane. As I put together each and every episode, I always keep in the forefront of my mind our most important contributor, you, the listener. We're grateful that you choose to spend your time with us, and I hope you stay tuned because we have a lot more genealogy to come. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 